You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Vera Curian on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called Never Saw Me Coming, and this is one of the most unique takes uh, on on the thriller genre that I've read in quite some time. And from literally from page one, I was hooked into the story and I just couldn't get enough of it. Uh, I know you're going to love it as well. The book is called Never Saw Me Coming and it's available everywhere uh, in, in the States uh, when you're hearing this and then everywhere else, uh, you know, it's coming out later in the week. And uh, I, this is something that I know you're going to love. Uh, welcome to the show, Vera. Hi, thank you. It's good to well, be here. Well, thank you. I'm excited to have you. Um, Vera, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Huh. I think um, I think it must have been probably maybe around fourth grade. I was really enamored with Greek mythology. Uh, if any of your listeners remember a book called D'Alaire's Book of Greek Myths with these like strange color drawings in them. Uh, I was obsessed with that book. And then I started writing um, horror stories that added elements of Greek mythology. And then uh, soon after I got a a manual typewriter, like the kind with the ribbon where the key hit the ribbon. Oh yeah. Um, And then ever since then uh, I was, I was a writer. I love it. Um, You know, an an interesting thing happens when, um, you know, you're young and you have this, epiphany sometimes you know i'm i'm going to be a writer i'm going to tell stories and you know a lot of times things crop up and uh life happens and you know you start uh you know pursuing a career and then bills that have to be paid and all of that and then writing has a way of coming back around um what was that like for you I so I never wanted to be a writer full time um, because I was always interested in psychology. And that is what I, you know, started to study in my undergrad. I remember I also took writing class. I minored in creative writing. And I remember having a professor asking me, like, oh, you're going to do that? Like, instead of getting your MFA. But like, I never I never wanted to do that. I mean, I always, you know, I was really interested in at first clinical psychology, but then social psychology. So then I went to grad school for that. But all along the way, like as a hobby, I was writing. And, you know, around 2013, I started publishing and going to conferences and stuff. But I had submitted short stories, like from the time of like high school to to publications. And it was always just like, I can do this in parallel with having a real career that's totally unrelated. Like, I, you know, don't work in publishing or anything. Um, so it's, it is possible to, to do more than one thing at a time. I'll say that. Absolutely. Um, I do find it interesting that you, um, wrote a lot of short stories and, and that was a medium that, that you were comfortable in. Um, I'm reminded of, 
the advice uh, by Ray Bradbury that, uh, you know, he would tell people that um, that you should write lots of short stories before you attempt anything else. But, and, you know, write a new short story every every week, because at the end of a year, you couldn't possibly write 52 bad short stories, could you? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it, I think it was kind of, you know, tongue in cheek, but, you know, he he believed in. And, and really working the process um, was was the form of the short story something that you just naturally gradu- uh, gravitated toward or what was it that that excited you about that form? Yeah, I think it's like a it's a manageable chunk of 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 work to have. And I think when you start taking writing classes, everyone's writing a short story in a workshop. because yeah. it's not tenable to to workshop a novel in that sense. Um, and that, and then when you're in those classes, you're reading the kind of classic short stories that uh, that are in the Norton anthology and you know John Updike and Carver and stuff. So that was kind of what I was emulating. And I mean, I know there are people that go from not writing, they don't write short stories, and they just start writing novels. I don't really get that because I feel like I had to kind of master short stories um, and actually develop a voice that way before I could move on to writing the novel um initially all i wanted to be was a short story writer and then i got an, i wrote a short story that uh, that someone said you should turn this into a novel and that was when i wrote my first novel so that was going to be my next question um how did you know that uh this particular project was going to be novel length did, did when you started thinking about it and thinking about the characters and, and the way the plot unravels did it just naturally need to be a, a novel length work i like so i've been writing short stories seriously from the time i was like 18 so i usually have a sense of like how long something will be because i've written a bunch of novellas too and like i know when i get an idea about how many pages it'll be um so i knew that this was a novel sized s- story like the the premise um and it was never a question of writing this as a short story. It just wouldn't have worked. I, I find that very interesting. I've heard other authors say that that they know from the beginning about how long something's going to yeah. be. What, what are what are some of the clues that let you know, you know, is this going to be a short story? Is it going to be a novella? Is it going to be a full-blown novel? What, how, you know, what are some of the things that you're looking for? Well, for, for me, I actually will plot something out entirely before before – getting into it. I mean, maybe not a hundred percent, but I pretty much know the entire plot before I start writing it. And, um, I don't spend a lot of time kind of like dilly dallying with like fancy prose. So that kind of gives me a clear sense of like, okay, this plot point, this fight happens. I know a fight will take five pages. So I usually have a pretty clear sense of, of how long something will be based on the complexity of the plot. Um, and that I just sort of go from there. And there's some some deviation when it comes to the editing that adds or subtracts length. But I usually have a good sense. Have you always been a, a plotter? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, I work full time. I don't, I don't have time to do like massive <laughs> structural rewrites over and over. I'm like pretty, pretty militant about you should plot your stuff out first. Because if you don't, how are you supposed to know if you have a plot hole? You know, right. Um, I like to resolve kind of what the issues are and then 
put down essentially like it's sort of like an architect an architect doesn't build you just build a building willy-nilly and be like oh i gotta i gotta fix it now you you start out with a blueprint and then you build the building right so just to play devil's advocate for a minute and and i'm not saying that i believe this or i don't but uh, you know some pantsers you know the the people that are opposite from uh from the way you think about uh, constructing a story um they'll say well if you plot it out that intricately, you take all of the um, the dynamic nature of, of writing away. And it's just, you know, when you're writing, it just feels like this is a story I've already written and there's no excitement there. Um, do, do you ever run into that or is that, so the, does that just sound yeah. silly? Well, I, th- that assumes that the act of writing is the act of sitting in the chair and typing out words right. as opposed to when I think of writing – Writing is a lot of things other than that. Writing yeah. to me is thinking about plot or thinking about character or just writing a description of a character treatment or even just kind of not not ostensibly working on something because sometimes I work a lot and then sometimes I don't work a little and I watch tons of terrible TV. <laughs> I believe the ideas are still percolating in my head at that time. So, I mean, I... I still think that there, if I'm not quote unquote writing, but I'm sitting down and working on the plot, that's still writing. You know, right. there's still the dynamic nature when I'm planning out how do I get from A to A to C to figure out what B is. That is still the dynamic nature. And even if I do plot everything out, that doesn't mean there can't be like an aha moment. Um, and even if you figure everything out, you know, then my editor can take a look at the draft and be like, oh, we need to do this. And then you and then you have to fix it again anyway. So I guess I just don't think of the process as like a sacred thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I 100 percent agree with you that that writing happens, uh, especially when you're not sitting down at the keyboard. You, you know, sitting down at the keyboard is is kind of when you're you're dictating the uh, all of the things that you've already worked out, you, you know, and mm-hmm. lots of activities can be labeled as writing because you're. Your, your subconscious mind is kind of chewing on, uh, you know, problems and, and things like that. And they have to be worked out and and not always at the keyboard or, you know, seldom at the keyboard, actually, when you really think about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of my by the time I sit down to write, I've kind of already done 90 percent of the work um, right. and doing that work, walking around or thinking when I'm taking a shower or something. So you minored in creative writing. What was your major in? Psychology. So the did that ever seem interesting to you that that um, you know that studying psychology and creative writing did did you ever see um, you know how those two would meld together or or was that you know a, a very conscious thing on your part? No, I don't think it was conscious at all. I never really thought about that psychology was informing me as a writer um well well, surely it does but i always thought the thing that informed me as a writer was reading a lot but um i also think the same thing that draws me to writing is the same thing that drew me to psychology which is like wanting to understand human beings and that's kind of what writing is is that you you invent a human being who doesn't exist and then you put them into various problems and then see what they'll do which is it's kind of like when you do experiments, um, it's a little bit similar to that in that respect. Yeah. 
Um, I, you know, you, you hear that advice all the time um, that writers need to read a lot and then they need to write a lot. And and that mm-hmm. through those two practices, you become a better writer. Um, I like yeah. to add a third to that, and that is to to talk to to other people. I mean, there's there's so much you can learn from just interacting with people and um, you know, not only learning people's stories and, and hearing them tell about it, but the way people communicate and the the body language that goes along with what they're saying. There's a lot that a, a writer can pick up uh, from from just you know the, the basic human interaction, and uh, it, I think that's um, you know coupling uh, creative writing with with psychology is just it, to me that's that's just a, a you know a masterful combination. Yeah, I mean, how how can you write three dimensional characters without right. understanding actual human beings as three dimensional characters? Right. So you go uh, in your your debut novel here. Um, you just jump straight into the deep end and and never <laughs> saw me coming. And you know, when we're talking about psychology. You just go straight hard in the pain, as we say. Um, what what was the initial idea for this story? I, I love to hear about the beginnings of things. And, you know, one moment never saw me coming, didn't exist in any form or, or fashion. And then, you know, either a character came onto the stage of your mind and you started, you know, wondering what what she was up to or he was up to. And uh, and and then, you know, in, in in some form it does exist. And then it's your job to kind of excavate, you know, what's going on here. Uh, what, what was the beginning of this project for you? I think the the background is that I had been reading a lot of psychological thrillers, which involved these sort of hapless female characters where they, you know, they would find a clue about their husband and then ask him about it. And he like, wouldn't give them an answer. And that would be the end of the chapter. And I would be like, no, I I need to know the answer to the question. Uh, So I was a little frustrated with that. And then I saw, you know, the enormous success of Gone Girl and like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, which have, you know, really different types of female leads. So uh, I think I had in the back of my head that I wanted this, you know, very driven female character. But I had an idea. I'd heard about a um, treatment facility for young psychopathic men where they would um, kind of try to modify their behavior by putting everything in terms of um, rewards rather than punishment or morality. And I was like, oh, you know, what if there was like a school like that? And then that got boiled down to, well, that's too many. What if there was just like a panel study at a university? And I had, um, in it, without spoilers, there's a scene in the book where someone takes out a handkerchief. Um, they've caught someone in a compromising situation and then i had that scene in my head and then i knew like the entire book based off that scene um i I knew the ending of the book like very early on and then uh, i wrote the book like very very quickly um it was very like it felt very viral when i was writing it authors i have a fantastic new service to tell you about it's called pubsite pubsite is a service to help you build your very own website your home on the web where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, 
or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process. The concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and 3 acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. PlotPens.com You uh, you mentioned Gone Girl just a minute ago, and uh, Gone Girl, while while not the first book by by uh, by any means um, to use an unreliable narrator, it it sure popularized um, you know this notion that we can read a novel and and not know you know a lot of times until uh, halfway through or three quarters of the way through, not know that the that the the author is messing with us, you know that that leading us down a path that uh, that's not true and and that you know could be subverted at any moment um and you you up the ante you ratchet up the tension in in that way um you know tenfold by the way that you do this what what is it about um having characters that we can't quite trust um but making them just likable enough that we want to go on the ride with them yeah, I mean, that was kind of my, one of my goals for this book is to create a character that a lot of people on the surface would find kind of despicable and I would make you fall for her. And um, I think part of the reason I was able to accomplish this is that 
it's refreshing that she's really smart and driven and like crafty because there's been so many books with female characters who aren't, but also she's just really funny. Uh, and that's kind of hard to, to not like. Um, and it, I think for women, particularly reading the book, Chloe is kind of the opposite of a lot of ways that women are forced to be like, we're told to be modest and she's completely immodest. And, and, you right. know, we're told to be, um, you know, sexually reserved and she's very open about her sexuality and we're told to be, you know, meek and she is planning a murder that's very violent. Uh, and there's something kind of satisfying about that to women. A lot of people are like, I don't know, I'm kind of icked out by this, but I, I like her and I want her to achieve her goal of murdering someone. <laughs> there's there's something to be said. Um, I'm glad you brought up the humor. Um, there's something to be said about uh, a thriller that keeps us on the edge of our seat and keeps our blood pressure up. Um, and then just a perfectly timed um, uh, scene where the writer lets us off the hook a little bit, lets us take a breath, lets us laugh a little bit, lets our our our, our blood pressure come down, our adrenaline come down, um, so that when you hit us with the next punch, um, it's almost more impactful because we've we have this uh, emotional roller coaster, if you will, the ups and the downs, and the and we get to experience those. Um, it, is is humor something that that's really important to you? Um, uh, do, do, well, let me ask it this way. Of course, it is. Um, is it something that you set out to do, or does does a character's um, characteristics um, just kind of dictate who they are? Did, did the did the humor come with her, uh, or was it something that you were you were consciously looking for places to to interject? Yeah, and it's interesting you say that. I did not intend to write this book and have it be funny. I had her character in my head with no sense that she would be funny, but I knew she was kind of shallow and judgmental. And then on the page when I'm writing it, that would end up coming out kind of funny. And even when I'm reading the book back and I wrote it, I still kind of laugh at some of her her one-liners. And I think that just comes from like, I'm kind of someone who's who's naturally funny. But if, if you think about it, as you were asking the question, I was thinking like, most thrillers don't have humor. I know cozy mysteries do, and that's a really different ball game. But like thrillers, for the most part, are often humorless. Right. But I from the tradition of I grew up like watching horror movies, and in horror, like fear and and jokes are like go hand in hand, and like you actually yeah. kind of sometimes need the the humor to balance the like the horrifying things you're you're observing. So I wonder if it has something to do with that of like, um, also it's just like, you know, it's fun to see the three main characters here interact. They're just so funny when they're together that like, you know, I couldn't resist. I kind of can't resist like making fun of certain cultural <laughs> things or, you know, stereotyped about different types of characters that you'd meet in college. Yeah. Um, did you know from, from the beginning that you would have alternating points of view um, th that we would see part of the story through Chloe's eyes and, uh, you know, part in, in third person and, um, uh, kind of, how did, yeah. how did, did, did that, um, how, how did you kind of settle on the style of narration that you chose? Yeah, I think a lot of psychological thrillers will have a very claustrophobic first person or a close third with different 
different narrators sometimes. And I wanted to do a mixture of first and third because it would allow it would allow the style of narration to inform how the mystery is occurring. So we see what Chloe is seeing, but what we see in third person is other people observing what she's doing and then other people observing other people. So we can see um, a different perspective on them. So we get clues via the different shifts in narration. And then you're like, um, you know, it is a good way of doing clue reveals without someone having to withhold information, which is a pet peeve of mine. So when we get introduced to a new narrator about a third of the way in, that person has information that Chloe doesn't have, um, but the way it wasn't withheld from the reader, we just didn't get that narrator yet. So I think it was a, a different way of using, um, I don't think that dramatic irony is the right word, but like of of introducing new information and showing different POVs of the same character to see what does this person look like from, from the external point of view. Um, in a lot of thrillers, there's... Um... Uh, you might have a psychopathic character and it's a lot of times not revealed, you know, until later in the uh, in, in the story that that this is the type of character that you're dealing with. Um, you let us know just right away um, mm -hmm. that, that not only do we have a psychopath we're dealing with, but we have, a, you know, a panel seven. of psychopaths, you know, seven yeah. of them. Um, what, uh, you know, what, you know, you that removes the element of surprise um, that you don't get to use. Um, but did it, did that offer um, new tools for you, new things that you could do to us as readers um, by just putting it, you know, just straight, you know, just letting us know from the get go, this is what you're dealing with. Yeah. I mean, like we've all seen or read, you know, stories where the twist is surprise, this person's crazy. And, you know, I wanted to subvert that. And, like, first of all, I think a lot of people use the word psychopath very casually to refer to anyone who's, like, a jerk. But I actually wanted to show what are the characteristics that are actually held by people like this? And what would it be like to be, to, to live as one of these people? And, like, what are the, what are these, you know, drawbacks or things that might help them um, on in their lives? And the, the, thing that's kind of the reveal is like the each new psychopath you get introduced to as Chloe tries to figure out who they all are. Um, and I wanted to have them all be different, even though they're all psychopaths. They all, you know, are completely different and have different thoughts and feelings about their own diagnoses. Um, Chloe clearly like doesn't care about her diagnosis. If anything, she thinks she's better than other people. Um, <laughs> but we have other people with really different perspectives on the same diagnosis. Sure. Um, I am not a mental health professional uh, in, in any way, shape or form. Um, but it's interesting that in our culture, when when someone says the word psychopath, um, there's all of this uh baggage attached to that and all of the stigma that comes with that and and and, and you allude to it in the book that um I, I think in like chapter three um that you know the uh, all the pop culture stuff that you know we only see the um the horrible people you know the and mm -hmm. the crimes that are associated with that um was that the, was that something that you set out to do to to kind of pull back the veil a, a little bit and to look at people that that just automatically get stigmatized, maybe in a different light. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they say somewhere between one to three percent of the American population is psychopathic, and that many, many, many of these people are not in prison. They are, you know, walking down the street with you. So um, I wanted to show this these as like fully rendered people, and also to be, you know, it's not the case that every single person who's committed a really odious crime is a psychopath. Like a lot of right. serial killers actually aren't. Um, and a lot of people who work at Enron probably were, uh, and <laughs> right. it's just, were they well adjusted enough to get on in life? But, um, Robert Hare, who's one of the main researchers of, in uh, the field, talked a lot about how a lot of people in corporate America have these traits, but you know, it's, it helps them to be successful. So, and there's different, you can kind of see shades of this in the different types of characters that are in the book. Right. This, how long did it take you to um, to plot out this? Because the, the plot is so intricate and there are so many twists and turns and, and you know, false starts uh, and and you, you pull the rug out from under us like 18 times. Um you know how how long is your plotting process, and and do you ever um, get anxious, and you know that you want to get to the writing, and um, like what's what's the the plotting process for you like? I mean, I probably had seventy percent of the plot figured out um, as I was writing it, and then I wrote the first draft like really fast. It was like six weeks, but then. When I was started querying it, I got really detailed feedback from an agent that was like, there's a major fault in this plot. And it, as soon as they said that, I was like, oh. So then I t really took a lot of time to just plot without writing, to like piece together the puzzle, to have it make sense. Um, so that took a lot more time. That took like a few months. Uh, and then the writing itself was fast because I... I kind of am a mystery writer where I want things to be like fair play. Like I, I don't like anything that feels like cheating. Um, so I wanted there, I want wanted there to be consistent clues, like a clue in almost every scene. And then for it to be like reasonable when you get to the solution with that. So it doesn't feel like the readers getting, you know, the wool pulled over their eyes or something. So um, I, I do think a lot about, you know, is the plot fair? Is this the right time for this piece of information? And have we earned it? Because I, I don't want like twist for the sake of twist. I'm actually kind yeah. of against twist myself. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I do think about like making an interlocking puzzle that makes sense is to more important to me than making the reader like shocked or something. Um, yeah. And maybe twist is is an unfair word. Maybe um, it, the narrative pivots in places. We'll, we'll put it that way. That you know, where or our our attention is turned to places we weren't expecting. Um, may, maybe that's yeah. a better way to talk about it. Um, but yeah, and, and I love that that you put that much uh, thought into it ahead of time because it it definitely shows that there's never. Uh, a part uh, of the book where the pivot feels like that you did that just for the shock value of it. Like yeah. it, it was definitely earned. Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> it's very, it's like really important to me because I get really angry when I feel like I've been cheated for the sake yeah. of surprise when I'm reading, when I'm reading a thriller. Cause really what, for me, when I'm reading, I'm there for character more than I'm there for 
for some kind of crazy plot. So uh, I wanted people to have a good time with the plot, but I'm really more interested in the characters myself. All right. Well, now that Never Saw Me Coming is out uh, in the world and your debut novel is out and, and you know, people are picking it up and, and, and loving it from what I can read so far, um, how do you start thinking about, you know, what you're going to follow this book up with? Uh, is, is book two uh, in the works? Yeah, so there there was a period of big downtime um, last year where I started. Uh, I'm writing um, a much larger book that's dual plot line that's very intricate with, you know, six main characters, points of view. So that is something that required not just a lot of plotting, but I spent like at least a month just working on character profiles and filling those out. And then um, quite a bit of time working on the plot line and making sure like the tension and each of the two timelines like made sense and lined up and when do I flash back to this time point. So I'm, I'm, you know, I think I just about finished plotting that and just kind of have to figure out a couple things, but I've been so busy promoting this book that I haven't actually gotten to work on that for like a month. Right. So it actually will be kind of nice to, to, uh, when things die down, I love, you know, the attention's really nice and the book deserves it, but um, it's also really stressful, and it would be nice to uh, get back to writing. I, uh, I, I can only imagine. Uh, Never Saw Me Coming is available now wherever you buy books. We're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode uh, where you can grab it uh, from, uh, from Amazon or Audible. Uh, and visit your local bookstore, uh, especially if it's an independent bookstore. Let's let's give them lots of love. I know bookstores had a really hard time over the last year and a half or so. And so if your bookstore is open, please go visit it and uh, grab Vera's book from them. Uh, if you can't get to a bookstore, we're going to have links to it where you can grab it from Amazon. Uh, Vera, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're up to, is there a place where they can connect with you online? Uh, probably the best place is my website, which has a blog on it. So veracurian.com. And then I, I'm on Twitter more than I am on any other social media site. Um, Great. But I'm also releasing a number of blog posts that are behind the scenes info about the book, which might be of interest through the month of September. Nice. Well, we'll link that up uh, in the show notes as well. Uh, Vera, this has been so much fun chatting. I love the book so much. I'm telling everyone about it. Um, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And we'll cut it right there. Uh, that was fantastic, Vera. That was that was so much fun. Yeah. So when when would this um, go up? Um, I think we're actually putting it out tomorrow. Um, oh, okay. I've had friends they, ask me. Yeah, we uh, we had COVID here uh, at the show, and 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 oh. my wife and I both, and that set our schedule all off and. Yeah, we're putting it out tomorrow. So uh, when we do, I'll send you a link and we'll promote it everywhere. Yeah, I hope you're feeling better. Oh, yeah, we're 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 all good now. But, uh, you know, it was a it was a hairy couple of weeks, but but we're all good. Yeah. But uh, yeah, when we I'll I'll send that to you tomorrow and uh, and yeah, we'll we'll uh, make sure everyone sees it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You have a good night. Bye. Bye bye. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book 2, by Jason Onspach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you 
by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. The Army of the Dead Walked Straight Into Our Ambush East of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the FOB is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51. A one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague, destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons, which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us Claymore mines the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymores' sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there and I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. 
and eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here draped about the spine where the throat should be, where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence, malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now. Except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. <laughs>